It is Friday the 19th of April 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 36 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a reminder that nothing that I or any of the guests say today should be considered financial advice. The information discussed on the show is general information only and if you're looking for financial advice, please speak to an authorised financial advisor. It is also Good Friday today and I hope that you think it is a good episode today for Easter. You might even think have been thinking that there'll be no podcasts this week, but this is a podcast that never sleeps, even for Easter. So we do have a good show today. I caught up with an investor friend of mine called Matt Joss during the week. We were sitting down, having a coffee, talking about Warren Buffett, as you do, which is a great way to spend any morning. And then we sort of decided, let's do a podcast. So we sat down and recorded a 25-minute conversation. The conversation is unscripted, and we have no set questions, so I really hope that you enjoy it. During the week, also, I also made an effort to catch up with Craig Herbison, the CEO of Plexure. I basically just wanted to get his thoughts on the acquisition by McDonald's of nearly 10% of the stock. So I've added that in as bonus content, the content at the end. Okay, so let's pick up on the conversation that I had with Matt. So I'm sitting here with Matt Joss. So firstly, Matt, would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm um, originally from New Zealand, uh, uh, joined a, a grad program with a shipping company out of out of uni, uh, moved to Copenhagen for a few years. And while I was there, I became obsessed with investing, kind of took over my life uh, nights and weekends, <laughs> um, started an investment club there in Copenhagen. Anyway, got obsessed um, and then moved to Australia to work as a research analyst for a couple of years and then portfolio manager for a bit over two years. So yeah, left there in uh, November and kind of uh, enjoying being a private investor at the moment and, and looking at and next steps yeah so what what made you become obsessed with investing was there a did you have a spark from when you were a kid or was it a particular moment or was it something you just developed an interest for yeah I guess it was um in my teens I read some terrible books like rich dad poor dad and and that kind of stuff yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) in hindsight like I loved it at the time but it definitely like got me on that thing that mindset um, and so, you know, bought, bought my first shares when I was like 18, but it was only a few years later that I really found like Warren Buffett and value investing mm. that I really had something to anchor myself to before that was terrible investing when I was that young. Um, but it, I guess, got me some experience and learning what not to do. Uh, and then when I really got obsessed was, um, yeah, kind of reading a book about Warren Buffett, like a lot of people and, and realizing there's a whole different way to invest. Um, yeah. I guess it was a similar approach to myself i mean when you were 18 what what how what 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 were you doing yeah what did you (laughs) what what made you buy your first stock what what was the sort of process that you followed for me it was i googled what companies increase their profits every year yeah ryman healthcare came up and i bought ryman healthcare that was my whole investment process what what was yours uh yeah it wasn't great process (laughs) (laughs) kind of embarrassing I think my first company was a vending machine, like a vending machine company oh, yeah? that would restock electronically. It ended up, I, I think I did okay, but it, after I sold it, it, ended up going bankrupt. So thankfully I got out of that one. Um, and then later at some point I invested in like a mining exploration company. I had, I was kind of, I viewed the world like there was, it was more about big macro themes is mm. how you should invest, which can work for some people, but is pretty challenging. Um, so I'm much more like driven from the bottom up these days. Um, so yeah, but that's, I guess how I, my kind of first thoughts, I was read like, forums where you know it's a blind leading the blind often yeah, yeah. Um, what's the hot idea and that kind of stuff yeah I think everyone has to go through that yeah I think it's it's always best to go through that when you are 18 year old, 18 years old with a small amount of money because at least then you're making mistakes and learning lessons with a smaller amount of money 100%. as opposed to a larger amount yeah um, so 
obviously it developed from there and then you got into the Warren Buffett and the Bahamut mm-hmm. value investing and treating it like a business. So how, how did it evolve from there? Yeah, so I got really into value investing and read all the kind of classics. Um, and I still kind of, that is kind of like the base of how I think mm. about things. But I, my styles evolved quite a lot over the last few years. Peter Lynch was a big influence. Um, another book called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. But looking more at, there's a few like outlier companies, um, like Amazon in the US and, and there's local equivalents. Um, a few companies that kind of dominate and those are the companies I focus on now. So it's much more growth and I do evaluation to make sure it's it's not crazy priced. So is that sort of where the the qualitative aspects of a company don't necessarily get reflected in the balance sheet yeah. straight away or the income statement straight away? Yeah, exactly. I just think that people don't really, it's very hard for us to appreciate exponential growth, for instance, the, the kind of the S-curve, how crazy things, how fast things can grow for how long mm. when there is mass adoption. Um, so I think all of those are opportunities. Anytime the market's generally getting something wrong is a good opportunity for us. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a second. But in terms of books, you mentioned books there. Is there any particular books you'd recommend people read? You yeah. mentioned 100 to 1. 100 but... to 1, uh, 100 Baggers, which I, I think yeah. you might be, have been reading as well. Um, so I like it, those... So 100 Baggers yeah. when every dollar your investor turns into $100. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, so it's looking at that book kind of categorizes all of the companies that have done more than that. So um, from memory, Apple was like an 8,000 bagger. Um, I think Warren Buffett's company is an 18,000 bagger. So every dollar turns into $18,000. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, there's interesting. What I like about that, though, is that it's not just a lotto ticket because mm. there are many times along the way where you can buy these companies at reasonable valuations and kind of join in that huge wealth creation journey that they're doing. Mm. Um, so it's about trying to find what are the common characteristics of those. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the I've, I've read that book as well. It's a it's a good book and all posted in the in the show notes. From reading the book, I, I think the key thing apart from identifying those companies as being able to hold on yeah. to them as well because it's obviously even with Amazon you used the example earlier where there's a whole period of Amazon's existence as a public company where it, it would have delivered mediocre returns so yeah. how how basically where I'm leading to is how how do you identify the companies that are worth holding on to because for every Amazon there's literally thousands of companies that yeah. go to zero or, or, or don't achieve the same sort of returns. Yeah. Uh, you may end up holding them for the same period of time. Is there, is there particular things you look for? Or? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's a few common traits. So they tend to be often quite capital light businesses. They don't need too much more capital to grow. And when they do reinvest, they have very high returns on invested capital. Um, that stuff you can measure. The other is a lot of it is driven by um, competitive what, advantage. So just, just for the listeners, what yeah. do you mean by a capital light company? So a capital light company um, would be often it's a software business or a brand something where to add an extra you know million dollars of revenue you don't need to go out and build too much machinery is often the case so something about the business which means you can add a lot more revenue a lot more customers without going and building a a new factory or something that sucks up a lot of capital a lot of investment if you have to invest a lot to do it then it slows everything down means your returns are going to be that much lower because you have to keep putting in more cash and you're making a lower return on that capital you you do deploy a hundred percent exactly Um, so I think software has been a big part, but also brands like A2 Milk was another company that um, I'd invested in. But again, that's a, a very capital-like company, isn't it? Exactly. So that's an interesting one, right? It seems like it would be capital-intensive, but actually they have simulated to do all the capital-intensive stuff. Yep, all the A2 hard work. is basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah, A2 is the marketing company. Exactly. You want someone else doing all the hard work for low returns and um, finding the businesses that capture the value on top. And I have to admit, that's one of the reasons I missed A2 Milk, 
was because I, I made the assumption without doing any research that it would be a, a capital intensive business where it wasn't until I dug into it later on when everyone started talking about it that I realized it was a, a capital like business. It reminds me of um, Coca-Cola's business model. Yes, exactly. I yeah. think that's the example I use. Yeah, um, yeah that Bellamy's and A2 Milk, both uh, Coca-Cola, they have the bottlers do yeah. the hard work and yeah. they just manage the brand. And it doesn't mean the, the bottling businesses are a bad business. Yeah, they could still be great. But, but they can't earn the same returns on capital. As, yeah, they yeah. can't be as exceptional. Absolutely. So I hate to sort of ask this question, but I know you have some views on the macro scene mm-hmm. as well, even though we're more bottom-up focused in this conversation. Yeah. What's your view on the wider economy and yeah. and the stock market in general? Yeah, so I'm living in Australia, and I think it's very interesting there because there hasn't been a recession in about 30 years. And so I think people have forgotten what it's what it's like or that they can happen. Um, so at the moment over there, house prices are down about 10%. A lot of indicators are, are slowing down. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm fairly bearish on the overall Australian economy. Almost all of the companies I invest in are global businesses. So I find the best businesses tend to have global revenue software and everything else, even A2, is quite global. So that's kind of how I'm positioning myself for it. But um, I'm not like timing the market. That's not my strategy. Mm-hmm. It's always bottom up, but it just makes you a bit more cautious um, I kind of like Howard Marks' mastering the market cycle view, where it's you're trying to not time the market, but you can be more like aggressive in the 2009, and as mm. things get too more expensive, you become a bit less aggressive. So, so it's not a necessarily a detailed macro view. It's more, say, something as simple as. You don't know when the top of the market's going to be, but you know it's not the bottom of the market. Yeah, right exactly. Yeah. You know you're closer to the top than the bottom, I think is pretty fair to say. Um, and I think just keeping an eye on these things, because I think there will be a time where you can just measure, you can observe the world and mm. see that things are very bad, and it takes a while for that story to change. So it's not really about predicting the future, it's just observing things. So like in Australia, we had very um, nearly... And negative economic growth if the next couple come out there, there'll be a lag before people really realize that that's the first recession in 30 years where you might want to start positioning yourself for that and for me right when i'm doing my investment i don't really think about where we are mm-hmm. in, the, in the cycle or even though it's obviously very important yeah. information i normally just think about the individual companies and if it makes sense to buy here mm-hmm. but how, how do you position yourself knowing that we might be closer to the top than the bottom, for example. Yeah, I think it should still be driven by those valuations. Um, that I'm, that's still the bedrock for me. Mm. Um, I guess it's just being more um, observant of how those valuations are and like, are you stretching yourself to buy? Are you kind of padding out your valuation to yeah. think this is good? Because um, you can justify just, anything. Exactly. Yeah. So being very cautious about justifying anything when things are running hot. I think is one part of it. And then also just trying to look for parts that aren't running hot. So, um, you know, a lot of Australian tech had, had become very expensive. You can look to other markets or other parts of the industry. Mm. So that's it's not everything is always hot at once either. That's another thing to keep in mind. Because that would be my biggest problem with a lot of software companies. I look at some of them and I just think they're fantastic businesses. Mm. But I can't rationalize the valuation in my head? I mean, what yeah. do you think of the valuations in the software space at the um, moment? It really depends on the business. Some of them are very expensive. Um, Appen was one that I'd bought fairly recently and I still think is reasonable value today. Mm. Um, and that, so that's a, so what, what Appen do? Yeah, so that's, uh, they provide the AI training data, uh, the training data for AI systems for Google and, and, and other big companies like Facebook so, so that they can train their algorithms. They provide the training data. Um, so there's still there's pockets, but I think it has. So Appen trades up. on the ASX and APX, is it? Uh, yes, that's correct. Or APN, yeah. uh, APX. APX, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So that's a company that's up, I don't 
a few thousand percent over the last few years. And yeah. uh, but I still think it's reasonably priced. So there's, there are companies out there, but I think you need to, as you say, do a bottom-up approach. I say one other point, though. I think a lot of people don't appreciate how good software businesses are. So there had been a very long time um, where they were undervalued. That, that's how they've mm-hmm. gone up so much because people don't realize how good it is to have a business with zero marginal cost that you can replicate globally and all the other good stuff that comes with it. So, yeah. Yeah. So when you when you say that, you mean that for every customer you add, it doesn't actually cost you anything. A hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So it's very different from a traditional model. There's no extra cost to have another customer. It's also very hard for that customer to switch. So they're often quite sticky software companies. It's hard to move away. Those, those two together, very low cost of supply and strong sticky demand is like, a magic combination and I don't think the markets fully bake that in I think sometimes they can get too excited we've seen the dot-com crash etc but um, generally speaking that's still not fully appreciated yeah yeah so you sort of see some more upside in, in general and, yeah I think I think it'll be there'll be swings I think that, that companies will still continue to be underappreciated in the space it's just a matter of avoiding some that are just overhyped and no one has any model for them yeah and just uh, it all comes back to me to valuation that's how you make sense of the world and yeah. So can can you talk me through, I guess, your your process? I mean, I had actually had some questions from some listeners during the week about mm-hmm. my investment process. But what's what's your sort of investment process from origination to, yeah, to placing the order? Yeah. So uh, very quickly, I try to I like Warren Buffett's um, start with the A. So he goes through every company on the index A to Z. Um, in Australia, that's like 2,000 companies. In New Zealand, it's a bit easier. It's like yeah. 200. Um, so go through everyone um, to like filter out what you'd try and find as a top 10% that are interesting business models um, and have all the things that you look for. So for me, that's, um, again, capital light businesses that are probably growing. Um, if they're not profitable, they're likely to be soon, well run. Trying to just skim through and then uh, diving very deep into a few of them. So before I'm actually buying a company, I'd want to be talking to customers and suppliers, talking to management, getting a handle of what is the competitive dynamics of this business, um, how dominant is it over all of the other companies trying to do what it does, and then finally putting a valuation on it, um, which means forecasting. For me, it means forecasting in the next 10 years of cash flows. I normally am more willing to give credit to companies to continue growing for longer, probably. Um, and also recognizing something called operating leverage, which is for these businesses, because they don't need to spend much more um, when they add new customers, each bit of revenue, um, they don't need to um, have much more costs. So that's a lot of operating leverage it means a much higher increase in profits than revenue. So you're literally doing Warren Buffett when he st- first started in investing, yeah. for those that don't know, well, probably not just when he first started, what he's probably always done yeah. is he's literally gone through a it was back in the day, it was called the Barron's book or something. Wasn't yeah, it, Moody's, Moody's Manual. Moody's Manual, yeah, 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 yeah. So he went through a, the Moody's Manual with basically a list of 10,000 stocks or whatever it was, all listed in a, in a massive book. And he went through A to Z just looking looking at each individual company mm-hmm. and, and finding out their information. Now, you're obviously not using a book, so you're doing that online. Are you using any screening tools or are you literally going from one to... Yeah, I have a spreadsheet which pulls in some data from Capital IQ. That, honestly, that just saves me some time. You could do it without, and I just have another spreadsheet which has a big list of all the tickers, yeah, um, all the um, symbols for all the companies. So, yeah, I don't really use too much else. I find that's a really good exercise because it just calibrates you as well. Like it helps you identify when a company is really 
probably exceptional because you look at all mm. the other companies which exactly, aren't. Exactly, yeah. Um, so that's half of the value. It's not just that it um, is a way to like turn over all the rocks. It's also makes you realize when you've really found something special. I 100% agree. I think sometimes when you over screen for things, you, you lose a lot of learning in the process. Mm. You know, exactly. from actually from actually going through, yeah. and but and, and, and obviously is time time consuming. So then, say you found one that registers your interest. Your next step is to read the company. Yeah, data. Re- read the company reports. Um, see if that's still interesting. Then start reading maybe about competitors. Um, ideally, talk to some customers or or read something from customers. If there are um, if there's like a prospectus, so that's understanding the product. Yeah, understanding yeah. the product, understanding its competitive position. Um, it's really good if you can talk to a competitor and see what they think about the company. That can be like quite good intel if they mm. really think they're a threat. That's probably a good sign. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like taking as much information as possible at that stage and just trying to like connect all the dots. So Warren Buffett has a filter, for example, if he doesn't understand, well, he obviously understands a lot more companies than what he lets on. Mm. But if he doesn't understand what the cash flow is going to be like mm. in, in 10 years time, He'll just move on to the next one. Do you have, you sound like you're a bit more flexible? Yeah, I'm definitely more willing to, um, I guess, see different options for the future. I think that that's like a great approach and that can work very well, but it means that you don't buy Google and Amazon too mm. easily. Um, so it's more for me, having a, I like to have a clear idea of why the company will grow. So and, and then there can be like other optionality on top. So if I was back in time valuing Amazon, I'd be valuing it on its um, um, like book retail business. Mm. And I wouldn't be valuing AWS, which is web services, because yeah. it didn't exist. But yeah. you can might be able to, you know, that's nice to have on top. So for me, that's it's looking at the existing business. But um, in that, in that yeah. example, sorry to interrupt, one, if they had done their, someone may have been able to realize that Jeff Bezos was was brilliant yeah yeah and may have realized that based on that qualitative information they could have predicted that he would do something else and something mm. they didn't know what it was going to be but you're essentially backing the yeah backing the person there, backing the you? jockey yeah and that i think can be like the cherry on top so that would allow me with valuation to like hold a company as it runs up to fair value i'll even hold a company sometimes slightly above an intrinsic value estimate if i think there's a lot of big upside that could come soon um, so in Australia, there was an example of a company called Altium, which makes mm. software for designing printed ALU, boards. was it? ALU, oh, that's, yeah. yeah. That's been a, a, another big winner. And um, part of the reason was it finally figured out how to start charging customers in China who were pirating <laughs> its product. Um, but around the time, like it ran slightly ahead of fair value, but it, they had been making some progress in China. And I was comfortable to hold um, a certain size position, recognizing they could have a, a real big change there, and they ended up did they did have it, and it worked out, and they're up I don't know, a few hundred percent since then. It can sometimes go the other way, but you've still got a very good business, and mm. yeah. So what you you mentioned you'd hold up to fair value. So mm. say if a if a company become you've you've got a price that you think it's worth. Yeah. At what point do you sell when it's over that price, when it meets that price? Yeah, or? so I'd normally start trimming back the position. So say that it's a 10% position, reducing it to 8% takes a bit of the risk off the table. I think about all that, like, it sounds like small, boring stuff, mm. but I think that is a big part of like, portfolio management. Um, so I think around when it starts getting past fair value, start thinking about to trim it. At a certain point, if it's 20% above what you think it's worth, you probably need to be looking to sell it. Um, it does depend a lot, though, like how what other new news is coming, how uh, yeah, how many other upside potential optionality do they have? So, yeah. and is there is there other situations that you would sell? So, say if there was, 
yeah. say you're only at Amazon, for example, and they suddenly did something you were very uncomfortable with or, or didn't like or... Yeah, I think that selling is one of the biggest areas people don't do well. And mm. I think um, one of the reasons, well, there's a lot of reasons why, but my for you is you should sell very quickly when a thesis is broken. So your reason for holding the stock is your thesis. You think X thing will happen. Um, if that if you find some evidence counter to that, I think you should sell very quickly because, as I said, there's a very few percent of companies that do these exceptional 100 bag or more returns. Mm. But that means that you are probably going to be holding a lot that aren't those and you need to identify those early and, and pull your weeds as quickly as possible, which goes against human nature. There's a bias of loss aversion, they call it, where you don't want to realize a loss or yeah. don't want to realize something when it's down. But I think you need to be able to be willing to move very quickly. And what if a situation where you buy a stock based off your valuation and, mm. and what you think of the company and, and the price may drop 50%, which could easily happen, yeah. especially with these sorts of companies. Yeah. Do you make any decisions based off price? Like if, if, if the thesis and your valuation is still intact, would, mm. that, would that encourage you to buy more or what would you yeah, do then? Yeah, I generally don't want to be driven by price, but um, if there's some reason that it's down 50% and I didn't see that, then that means I'm probably a yes. bit wrong. Yeah. So I don't, I, um, I'm definitely not driven by price, but if the market's telling you you're wrong, I definitely check my view, I guess. So um, ideally buy more, but it would depend a lot. Like often if it's down 50%, it means I probably got something wrong. And mm. so I'd want to be very comfortable that I, I was right and the market was wrong. So if your thesis was still intact and yeah. nothing had changed, then you yeah. might consider yeah, hundred percent. Like if yeah. I was very convinced the market was wrong, that can be a great opportunity. Um, but it's just, just don't be too arrogant. I guess is my view yeah. for myself. Um, and just make sure you're, you really, you should understand. I think Charlie Munger says this: understand the bear's position, understand the negative position mm. better than they do, and yeah. then you're, you know it well enough to, to own it. And from a portfolio management management perspective, are you typically quite concentrated in your stocks? Yeah, or are you... um, I guess a lot of fund managers out there, I think, are mostly about correct um, protecting their salary, <laughs> their career risk. Yeah. So they'll buy 100 or 200 companies and be very like the index, and they just don't want to be too different. Um, on, on that scale, I'm very concentrated because I probably own 15 to 20 companies. Um, you know, an individual investor might think that's quite diversified. I think that's at like a fair level where you're getting enough diversification while still concentrating as much as possible in your best ideas. Yeah. And what's the advantage of concentrating in your best ideas? Um, yeah, basically just that it's very hard to be right and have a different thought on 100 companies. It's much easier. It's yeah, if I could have 100 really brilliant ideas, that would be fine. But I think the amount of time and energy you need to invest, it, it concentrates you down to a few. And you really want to be, by focusing on those best, as long as you're accurate, that is how um, you can have yeah, exceptional returns, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think, of, I think a similar way, to be honest. Like, if you've got if you've got a great idea, they don't come around every day. Yeah, exactly. And then if you've got a great idea and you invest 1% of your portfolio in it and it, and it goes up five yeah. times, then you've got 5% in your portfolio yeah. and you don't really realise the full... Exactly. The full return and of I, it, you know? Ideally, uh, one of my mottos is buy low and then buy higher. So I really try and... Um, pride myself and force myself to continue to buy more if there if the thesis is unfolding well so mm. um it doesn't always happen there's a bias we anchor to that original price but i think if you find a company that can go up 
tenfold. If you can buy when it's up twofold, threefold, fivefold, that's still really huge as long returns. as the valuation as long still as makes, valuation sense. makes yeah. sense, and often it can. And yeah. it can run up and people still don't really appreciate so oh yeah i mean amazon was a good buy when it was a four billion dollar company it was yeah. a good buy when it was a 40 billion dollar company <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so it's yeah. if, if you could buy along the way you're, exactly. you're certainly doing well yeah and i guess just on the diversification thing there's nothing wrong with having that diversification you yeah. know owning 100 stocks only yeah. 500 stocks but there's easy ways of doing that isn't yeah, there? yeah exactly you can buy an etf so we've been talking for a while now matt so just before we wrap up is there any particular stocks or, or companies you'd like to talk about to, to the listeners bearing in mind that nothing's financial advice and yeah, it's all yeah, general yeah. information um yeah i think so appen was one that i mentioned earlier i think that's um still quite interesting they just made a takeover of their one of their big competitors um so i think that could be a really interesting space as ai continues to roll out um, and it's still at a reasonable price uh, another company, just quickly mentioned that I quite like, is Ordinate. Um, so they're... Um, is AD8? AD8. Is That's okay. the code, yeah. yeah. Eight exactly. is in the number eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Correct. Um, so they're providing uh, a kind of a standard for um, running audio engineering over Ethernet cables rather than over traditional audiovisual cables. Um, they have run up a bit, but I, I, a very attractive long-run economics. For me, the question just there is monitoring the valuation. So are they um, profitable at the moment, or are they still in the... Yeah, they've just tipped into profit, and um, they're basically becoming their Dante um, standard. Their transmission standard is becoming the standard for the industry, mm. and that is very valuable if you control the, the standard for the industry. Um, a, a very valuable spot to be in. So I think they've got um, a lot of good economics, a very good competitive position. They need to manage that well. They can't be too aggressive like Microsoft in the early 90s, but it's a similar kind of thesis where they control the standard for the industry and they're selling the product that the industry uses. So yeah, really interesting one. And again, Appen I think is probably closer to um, like a, a much more reasonable valuation as well for a company that's still growing very fast. Fantastic. Um, and is where can listeners go if they want to find out more information about you? Yeah, the, uh, the best right now is probably mattjoss.com, so M-A-T-T-J-O-A-S-S.com. Um, so I write about investing there. I'll be writing up another company that I haven't talked about so far over the next couple of weeks that I've just been researching, um, a, a Kiwi company, actually. So, yeah, I'll be writing, writing a few thoughts on investing there. That's the best place to follow along. So that's a free blog, is it? Yeah, it's a free blog. Um, there will be some other next steps and news, hopefully, in the next yeah. few months. But, yeah, that's a, good, that's a free blog you can go and just have a read about investing. So there you go, listeners. Head to mattjoss.com in a couple of weeks to find out about a new NZX a new company. company he's yes, looking at. absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks very uh, much for coming in, Matt. Thanks very much for having me on. Really Cheers, cool. So I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Matt. I always like talking to Matt. We have very similar investment approaches. We both think about investing from a bottom-up perspective, and we believe that the key thing is that it starts with the fact that you're buying part of the business. So I always think that most questions in the stock market, if you're unsure of the answer, can be answered when you get back to the question, what would this mean if I were buying the whole business? And you can work backwards from there. I would say that the only difference between our approaches is that Matt generally is more comfortable with is is more comfortable with forecasting out growth rates in the future than what I am. So this generally means that he's usually more comfortable than what I am in buying companies at a valuation that assume a lot of growth, which is, is, is absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with that so it was a fantastic conversation and i hope you enjoyed it so for this for this part and the final part of the episode i, I just had to get hold of craig herbison from plexure during the weekend and talk about the the mcdonald's buy-in so i've added this in as bonus content for the episode which i'll play for you now 
So Craig, I was speaking on the podcast last week about McDonald's buying into Plexure. Mm. I'd love to hear the backstory about how that came about. Well, the process started with us renegotiating the um, global agreement with them in terms of our SAS agreement. And that was taking quite some time because we were trying to move our pricing model on from a very distribution-based model to more transaction activity-based. And through that, we sort of got to see, you know, the number of customers, the customers we actually had on our platform and in the markets. And it sort of became fairly clear that, um, you know, we were quite significant to their business and to their, their franchisees. Is that because you had 100 million of their customers yeah, well, we essentially... Did. We, we didn't. At, we, we didn't at that time. We had, you know. So this is we can. We put on about five percent every month, yeah. uh, and we integrate new markets pretty much every month as well. So as it went through, it became more and more. Um, and I think, you know, from their perspective, it was, you know, how can we make sure that you know our customers are kept safe in this environment? Um, you know, they knew the business was investing quite heavily in increased availability, security, uh, those sorts of things, and the experience for their customers. But I think it became a point where you know it became quite strategically important to them, and so they wanted to participate in their business uh, to really help us grow. Mm. So they're obviously a ten percent holder now. When you mentioned strategic for them before, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, it's nine point nine percent. Nine point nine. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think you know if you look at what Steve Easterbrook was saying about the importance of you know the digital experience in terms of the experience of the future for McDonald's. Um, this is an enabler of that experience. Um, the acquisition of Dynamic Yield the week before, the 300 million to that company, which effectively is helping them, um, you know, get more value out of their drive-through through decisioning, um, really talked to these enablers of that experience, uh, being quite important. And I guess they wanted to get closer to our business in that sense. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of off-air before about. Is there some sort of exclusivity with McDonald's in terms of some products, or is it how's that working? Well, so as part of the uh, the deal, there's a list of companies which we won't uh, work with. Yeah. Uh, the Yum Foods restaurant brands, as you might expect, KFC, Pizza, the direct. So the direct. The direct competitors, yeah. and I think you know from our perspective, we weren't targeting them necessarily anyway. Uh, for the reason that um, they may not have wanted to be in the place where you know, one of their large competitors was at some scale, mm. and also just from a you know, good business practice perspective, not wanting to you know, harm or you know, impact our customers as a result by giving a tick to someone else. So is that strategic from McDonald's, do you think? Um, yeah, I th- I, yeah, absolutely, because what came then with that was, you know, um, you know the ability for them to, you know, if we get a, a takeover office from somebody within that, uh, around one of their competitors, they have the ability to step up and uh, look if they want to take more of the company or, or assert more control. Absolutely. Um, and it's obviously a huge, well, I see it as a big vote of confidence from the company. Did it generate a lot of publicity and press for you guys? Oh, incredible amount of publicity. I think on the first day we had 11 new leads and through the website. Um, unfortunately, from those brands that we're not able to work for anymore, <laughs> but uh, yeah. some of them anyway. But certainly, you know, a lot of lot of leads, and you know, it's sort of um, global PR that you can't really buy. Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah. Fantastic. It's really put Plexure on the map globally, um, and you know, it's opened a lot of opportunity. So we're in that very you know interesting position at the moment where we're able to say no, not good fit for us. Um, this is more what we're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. So sifting through that. And then are they taking an active role in the business or is it more of a passive 
No, McDonald's are, McDonald's are a shareholder like any other shareholder. They're not the largest shareholder in the company, and they have the same footing as, as, as everybody else. else. Yeah, yeah. So there's no board directors or no. anything like that coming up. No. Right. Fantastic. No. Great. Was well, is there anything you'd like to add about the about the acquisition? Well, not the the, the stakeholding, or is anything about the company you'd like to add at the moment? Well, I just think you know, again, it's you know, really strong positive signal of the talent that New Zealand has in the space that we can export it worldwide and get the attraction. An interest of you know really big global brands that are interested in what we do here, and you know, I think from you know little old Auckland, New Zealand, we can serve global companies, and cloud-based technologies obviously you know, enable that. But um, I think it's just another really good story of us taking on the world. Yeah, absolutely. And being I, successful. I say I can't think of uh, I say to you before I can't think of a situation where an, an American company of this sort of prestige is bought yeah. into an NZX yeah. company so it's, it's no, neither can I it's very interesting news yeah. for me anyway good Thank good stuff cheers right that is about all we have time for this week big thanks again to this week's guest Matt Joss from mattjoss.com and Craig Herbison from Plexure always love to get guests on the podcast so if there's anyone that you would like to get on the podcast then please email me at jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz please also give us a like on Facebook as well send me a message also if you'd like to receive a copy of my quarterly investment report that I send out to investors for my portfolio service thanks again for listening to episode 36 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 19th of April 2019 I'll see you all again next week